Welcome to A.T. Stewart and Sons Ministries. I'm your host, A.T. Stewart. I'm glad you've chosen to join us today as we look into the Word of God. So take your Bibles and let's hang out in God's Word for a few moments and see what God would say to us today. It was September 1972. Terry and I had been married about a month. I thought I would make some homemade ice cream. Somebody had given us an electric ice cream churn. So I thought it would be good to pull it out and figure out what I was doing and make us some homemade ice cream. Good hot September afternoon in Mississippi. So uh, I read the directions about how to mix up the ingredients to go in there. I mixed up the ingredients, making sure I went right by the directions all the way, and I went and purchased the ice, and I started uh, packing the ice around the uh, churn and, and plugging it in and letting it run, and kept adding the ice and kept letting it run, and, and after about 20 minutes, it just wasn't slowing down a bit, just kept going, and I put a little more ice on it and started reading the instructions again, and I put all the ingredients in there, and I put some more ice on it. It just kept churning and kept churning. And finally, after about 45 minutes, I said, Terry, this stupid thing doesn't work. I did everything I was supposed to do, and the stupid thing won't make any ice cream. So I just figured, hey, somebody had given us a broken down ice cream churn. Well, a few weeks later, I was talking to somebody about it, and... Uh, they said something like, well, did you put salt on the ice? I thought that's something you put on the road when the ice was on the road to keep it from being slippery. They said, oh, no, you've got to put salt on it to make it cold enough. Now, that defies logic to me that salt would make ice colder than it is. But it does. And so you see, the problem was not the ice cream churn. The problem was stupid old me. You know, sometimes we think one thing's a problem. In reality, we're the problem. And that's the question I'm putting before you today. Are you the problem? Paul is writing to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 3. And he's writing to Timothy from a dungeon, a prison cell. And Paul knows his life is coming to an end. And he's giving Timothy instructions on how to minister in the last days. And he tells him that in the last days, there are going to be difficult times to minister. There are going to be hard times. And the reason the times will be difficult is because of the people. Someone has aptly said, ministry wouldn't be so bad if it were not for the people. I thought that more than once. And Paul says there are certain kind of people that are going to make it really hard to minister. Now the question I want to ask you this morning is, are you one of those people? Are you the problem? Because we're called to be disciple makers, every one of us. And so to be a disciple maker that God's called us to be, we need to be about the work of ministry. But there are certain people that make that very difficult. Beginning in verse 1 of 2 Timothy 3. Now I want to say before I read this that Paul is writing about church folks. 
Okay. But realize this. In the last days, difficult times will come. When men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, malicious gossips, without self-control, brutal, haters of good, treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, holding to a form of godliness, although they have denied its power. Avoid such men as these. For among them are those who enter into households and captivate weak women, weighed down with sins, led on by various impulses, always learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. Just as Janes and Jambres opposed Moses, so these men also opposed the truth. Men of depraved mind, rejected in regard to the faith. But they will not make further progress, for their folly will be obvious to all. Just as Janes and Jambres' folly was also. Now the first thing we need to realize is that we are in the last days. Now before you get too excited, the last days, when it's spoken of in the biblical sense, covers all the way from the time Jesus was crucified until He returns. Now many times you will hear the concept last days and people will mean it in the days that Jesus is about to return. But that is not the biblical use of this phrase. For example, over in the book of Hebrews, chapter 1, at the beginning of of that book, the writer is talking about the revelation that God has given through Jesus Christ. And he says in verses 1 and 2, God, after He spoke long ago to the fathers in the prophets, in many portions and in many ways, in these last days, has spoken to us in His Son, whom He appointed heir of all things, through whom He also made the world. So when Jesus was walking on this earth, when He came, that signaled the last days in God's economy. Also, over in Acts chapter 2, you will remember when Peter was preaching on the day of Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit was poured out and they began to speak in languages they did not know. And the question was, what's going on? Are these men drunk? Because there were some who didn't understand what they were saying. And Peter's explanation for what is going on is a quote from the prophet Joel. And he basically says, this is a sign that we are in the last days. Look in verse 17 of Acts 2. And it shall be in the last days, says God, that I will pour forth of my Spirit on all mankind, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. So we are in the last days. Now Paul says that these last days will include seasons of great difficulty and stress. Now the word times in our translation means seasons. 
It means periods of time. Paul is saying there will be seasons, there will be times, there will be periods of great difficulty for the church. It will not be a continuous thing, but it will be periodic times. There will be times of great difficulty. Times that will be savage. They will be violent. And you see the word difficult in your translation? It means hard to bear. It means hard to deal with. In the classic Greek, this word was used to speak of a savage animal, a raging sea. The word's only used one other time in the entire New Testament. And it's used to speak of those two demoniacs that were so crazed, so violent, that they could not be chained down and no one was willing to venture out and pass by the graves and the tombs where they were hiding out because they were so exceedingly violent, those gathering demoniacs that are talked about in Scripture. And so this word describes in the last days there will be times that will be brutal. They will be savage. They will be difficult to bear. They will be menacing. And the reason they will be difficult to bear and menacing is because of people and the way people will be. Now, I've been in ministry over 30 years. And I can say that these days of ministry are more difficult than any that I have had in the 30 years that I've been ministering. We are in, in my opinion, a difficult day of ministry. And it's because of the people. The people are the problem. And the question is, are you the problem? Now let's look at the characteristics of those who are the problem that Paul talks about. First, do you have a misdirected love? Verse 2. For men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revilers. The overall characteristic of these people will be their love will be misdirected. It won't be that they don't have love. Oh yes, they have plenty of love. It's just directed in the wrong place. They love their self first. You know, when the Bible says you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul, with all your strength. Well, these people love themselves with all their heart, with all their soul, with all their mind, with all their strength. These people love their possessions with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. They love their pleasures with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. As a result of this supreme self-love, they will first of all be boastful. They will be braggarts. And this word in the Greek means wanderer, one who wanders about bragging, talking about how great they are. And you remember, the picture here is of those who used to go from place to place in the olden days peddling these false uh, remedies, these false cures, uh, this horse medicine. Uh, They would go around and they would brag about how great their medicine was. And that's the concept that we have here. Someone who goes about talking about how great they are all the time. You know, nobody likes to be around a bragger. Nobody likes to be around somebody that's 
Talking about how wonderful and great they are. And you know, to the people who are listening, it's ridiculous. You think, man, this guy, he doesn't realize what he sounds like. Because they just keep bragging and bragging and, you, and it just gets ridiculous. It's like the fellow that always bragging about how good a shot he was. Just bragging to this guy at work. Man, I'm this great shot. He just go on and on and on. So one day, the guy at work said, okay, let, let's, go, let's go hunting. Let's go duck hunting. So the guy said, all right, great, let's go, man. I'm a great shot. So they went out duck hunting. And they ran on some ducks, and this duck came up, and this guy who was a bragger pulled up his shotgun, and man, he fired at that duck, and the duck just kept flying, man, unscathed. And so the guy who was working with him looked at him and kind of had a little smirk on his face, and the old bragger waited a moment, and he said, I want you to know, you are beholding a miracle in progress. There is a dead duck flying. Now, you see, that's the way the braggings are. They get so caught up in their own bragging, it gets ridiculous. Second, he says they're arrogant. They're haughty. They think they're better than other people. They think they are superior. They look down on other people. The story is told of Muhammad Ali. And if those of you who are old enough will remember when Muhammad Ali was in his prime, he was anything but humble. Uh, he was a braggart and arrogant if there ever was one. He made no boat, no, uh, uh, didn't hesitate to say how great he was and he was the best. Well, the story goes that he was on an airplane one day and the airplane was getting ready to take off and so the stewardess was telling everybody to fasten their seatbelt. Well, Muhammad Ali would not fasten his seatbelt and so the flight attendant went over to him again and said, you need to fasten your seatbelt. He said, do you know who I am? I'm the great Ali. I'm a superman. And a superman doesn't need to fasten his seatbelt. And the flight attendant didn't miss a beat. She looked at him and said, yeah, and superman doesn't need to fly on a plane either. He can fly around. Now buckle up your seatbelt. So they're arrogant. Revilers. Blasphemous. Speaking evil. Abusive. Railing, slanderous, reproachful. You see, when a person is so in love with themselves, they have an exaggerated opinion of themselves, and therefore they look down on others and speak of others with contempt. How many of you are familiar with the hymn, Rock of Ages? I think we all are, aren't we? Rock of Ages, cleft for me. Well, the fellow that wrote that him was Augustus M. Toplady. He lived back in the days of the Wesley brothers. Now, when he was 30 years old, he was a young novice in the ministry, and he wrote about a 70-year-old man by the name of John Wesley. Now, let me read you what he wrote about John Wesley. He says, he is a lurking assassin, guilty of audacity and falsehood, a knave, guilty of mean, malicious impotence. He is an Ishmaelite, a bigot, a papist, a defamer, 
a reviler, a liar, without the honesty of a heathen, an impudent slanderer, with satanic guilt only exceeded by Satan himself, if even by him. He is an echo of Satan. The same guy that wrote Rock of Ages. You see, arrogance, pride can make revilers out of us. Do you have a misguided love this morning? Secondly, do you lack love for family? Paul goes on to say, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable. Now, Paul takes the next five words and he's talking about family life. Now, all of these words are what's known in the Greek as a-privative words. That means that they have a prefix, a, that negates the word. Now, we do this in an English word, amoral, which means without morals. Uh, we put an un in front of a word, we negate it. Or a dis in front of a word, ungrateful. They're not grateful. Well, in the Greek, they would just put an a in front of it, and that would negate it. And this is a series of those words. First, he says, disobedient to parents. Now, the Bible says, obey your parents. But Paul says, these people are disobedient to their parents. Now, that's interesting that he's talking about these people who are problem causers, and he talks about them as children. And so that leads me to believe that they're not all old people but they would fall into the rank of teenagers in our day. Are you disobeying your parents? Are you doing things that you know your parents would not want you to do? If you go home on Friday night or Saturday and you can't tell your parents everything you did, then you're being disobedient. Because you're not doing what you know your parents would want you to do. Disobedient to parents. Ungrateful. Again, this refers to the relationship in a family. There is no gratefulness to the parents. No appreciation for what the parents have done. What they have sacrificed for you as a child. How long has it been since you thanked your parents? Thanked your mom for giving you life. For carrying you. For taking care of you. Thanks your dad for providing for you all those years, eating at his table. How long has it been since you've thanked your parents that you've shown gratefulness? In the last days, the difficult people will be ungrateful. Next, it says unholy. That means irreverent, impious toward their parents. Again, God says honor your parents. They dishonor them. You say, well, how do they dishonor their parents? They lie to them. They tell their parents they're going one place and they go another. They tell their parents they're doing one thing and they do another. They're lying to them. They're deceiving their parents. And if you're doing that, you're part of the problem. Or they call their parents names. It has to do with old mangy dogs. Next, he says, unloving. 
completely lacking in that natural love for the family. It's natural for children to love their parents. That's just natural. But in these difficult days, Paul says, that love will be missing. In that times of difficulty and stress, that natural love won't be there. Children will be turning against their parents. Then he says, irreconcilable. That word represents people who are not willing to come to the table to work out a difference. They're not willing to sit down and work out their differences and be reconciled. It referred in the Greek language to someone who refused to enter into a treaty with someone else to make peace. Refers in a family situation to children who are unwilling to be reconciled to their parents, to make peace with their parents. But they keep things agitated and stirred up. And since the church is just an extension of the family, you can apply these same criteria to our church life. Are you disobedient to your spiritual leadership? Are you ungrateful? to the spiritual leadership and what those do for you? Are you irrelevant, irreverent, or impious toward them? Are you unloving? Are you unwilling to make peace and work through differences? These difficult times will be characterized by a breakdown in family life. In a society that is proper, the parents and children should have a respect for each other. That should be a mutual gratitude and affection and reasonableness. But in the difficult, hard times, Paul says, these will be missing. Are you part of the problem? Third characteristic. Are you utterly self-centered? Continuing in verse 3. Malicious gossips. Without self-control. Brutal haters of good. Treacherous. Reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. First, malicious gossip. That word gossip is the same word we get for devil. It's the word for devil. It means to hurl an abuse, to be a backbiter, to be a scandal monger, to speak evil of others behind their back. Let me read you some words that I think are very apt about gossip. My name is gossip. I have no respect for justice. I maim without killing. I break hearts and ruin lives. I am cunning and malicious and gather strength with age. The more I am quoted, the more I am believed. I flourish at every level of society. My victims are helpless. They cannot protect themselves against me because I have no face. To track me down is impossible. The harder you try, the more elusive I become. I am nobody's friend. Once I tarnish a reputation, it is never the same. I topple governments, wreck marriages, and ruined careers, cause sleepless nights, headaches, and indigestion. I spawn suspicion and generate grief. I make innocent people cry in their pillows. Even my name hisses. 
I make headlines and headaches. Before you repeat a story, ask yourself, is it true? Is it fair? Is it necessary? If not, then be quiet. But in these end days, these last days, the problem makers will be gossips. They'll be self-centered and without self-control. No power over themselves. There's no shame. They don't care how their sin hurts themselves or hurts others. He says they're brutal, savage, fierce, haters of good. They don't like what's good. You know, if you're a hater of good, you're a lover of evil. They don't like justice and purity and truth and honor. But they love deception and lies and injustice and impurity. They're treacherous. Traitors. This word is used to describe Judas in the Gospels. No loyalty. Turn on people who are supposedly their friends. He says reckless. This means to fall forward. They recklessly, headstrong, pursue evil. Thoughtless about what the consequences will be of their evil deeds. They're conceited, swollen with conceit, puffed up. They know everything. They're hard-headed. You can't tell them anything. You try to show them the error of their ways and they just look at you like you're crazy. I don't see anything wrong with this. Lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. They love their pleasures. There's no love for God in their hearts because their hearts are filled with a love for pleasure. Their hearts are captivated by seeking this self-indulging pleasures. Next, he says that they have a Christianity that is only a show. Is this you? Do you have a Christianity that's only a show? He says in verse 5, holding to a form of godliness, although they have denied its power. They claim to be Christians. They have a form of godliness. These are church people. You see, they go to church. They put their money in the plate. They sing the songs. They pray the prayers. But it's only show. It's only outward performance. They have the form of godliness. But in reality, you're not saved. In reality... You deny its power. There is no spiritual power within you. There is not that love for God and His Word and His people. There is not the inward reality of Christ within you. But instead there is a dead faith. Oh, you know all about Him. But your faith does not produce good works. There is a religion without morals. There is no transformed life. Unless you get comfortable in your church membership and having been baptized, look at what God says over in 1 John chapter 3, verse 7. He says, little children, make sure no one deceives you. Don't be tricked. Don't deceive yourself. The one who practices righteousness is righteous, just as he is righteous. 
The one who practices sin is of the devil. For the devil has sinned from the beginning. And the Son of God appeared for this purpose to destroy the works of the devil. And no one who is born of God practices sin. So you think you can live like the devil and give evidence of being saved? No way. Don't trick yourself. Grow up in a church. But if you're not living the life, you better question if there's spiritual truth and life within you. I don't care what prayer you prayed. I don't care how many times you've been baptized. If you're not living in obedience to the Word of God, God says you are being deceived. If you think there's spiritual life in you. Because he that has the Spirit of God in him, you can't continue to live in sin like that. The Spirit of God will convict you and so get over you, you won't be able to stand it. Are you the problem? Then Paul tells Timothy, if you're not the problem, then you need to avoid those who are. The purpose in the original writing of this to Timothy was to stay away from these people. This is a command in verse 5. Avoid such men as these. Stay away from them, Timothy. This is a command of God because bad company corrupts good morals. That is a theme throughout this book. You will remember over in chapter 2, verse 22... He tells him to flee from youthful lust, but pursue after righteousness and faith and love and peace with those who seek God from a pure heart. He says, Timothy, bring yourself together with those who seek God and avoid those who are nothing but a sham, who claim to be Christians but are not living it. Those so-called Christians. Turn away from these False Christians, these so-called brothers. Paul says the same thing over in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 to the church there. Verse 11, But actually I wrote to you not to associate with any so-called brother. That's somebody who claims to be a Christian. If he is an immoral person, a covetous, an idolater, or a reviler, or drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. Now, folks, I'm not talking about folks that don't claim to be Christians, because you'd have to get out of the world if you had to get away from those kind of people. But the ones who claim to be Christians, and yet they're living like this, he said, avoid them, stay away from them. Why? Because, first of all, they seek to bring you down. But back over in first in Second Timothy. He said, These people go into the homes of, of weak women and they captivate them for the purpose of bringing them down and taking advantage of them. These people who are living this way, Paul says, they will seek to lead you down the path of destruction. Because bad company corrupts good morals. They say, Oh, it's nothing wrong. Come on and join us. Nobody will know. Come on, it's fun. You'll enjoy it. And they seek to bring people down. Second, avoid them because they resist the truth. They're not willing to call the sin in their lives sin. Oh, it's okay. 
There's nothing wrong with it. What's wrong with it is it's a sin against God. What's wrong with it is that it pains the heart of God. What's wrong with it is it destroys your witness. What's wrong with it is that it brings you into captivity to Satan's ways. What's wrong with it is that it's detrimental to your health and your moral well-being. That's what's wrong with it. So they resist the truth. And then thirdly, avoid them because their sins will find them out. Verse 9, But they will not make further progress, for their folly will be obvious to all. Be certain, your sin will find you out in God's time. And if you associate with these people and their sin comes out, you are guilty by association. And it destroys your witness as well. People associate you with who you hang with. And if they're involved in sin, people are going to think you're involved in sin, even if you're not. And when they're found out, you will be tarnished. So if you're not a part of the problem, then God commands you to avoid those who are. Are you the problem? If you are, you need to repent. You need to come before God and you need to confess to Him that you have sinned and that these characteristics, some of these hit you right in the face. And you need to confess before God and agree with Him that it is sin. Then you need to forsake. You need to turn away from it by His grace. By the power of the Lord Jesus Christ, you need to ask Him into your life to forgive you of these sins and by His strength to turn away from them. You cannot do it in your own strength, but with the power of Christ, you can. Because the resurrection power has defeated sin and Satan. And that resurrection power will dwell in you when Christ is in you, and you can see victory. If you're not the problem, then you need to avoid those who are. Those who claim to be Christians. Don't be ugly. Don't be mean. But you need to let them know that because of the way they're living... God says you cannot hang around them until they bring their lives in line with the Word of God. It's just being biblical. And as loving a way as you can, you must avoid those God commands. Are you the problem? Are you part of the solution? Let's pray.